Um, glorious and lost are not two words that we often put together, but Acts 12, I think, uh, brings those two extremes uh, to the same place. So if you got a Bible, Acts 12 tonight, um, it's a little bit of a break in our, uh, the story we've been following, the, the story that Luke has been telling in Acts. Uh, really, for the last six chapters or so, there's been just this upward swing of progression. The church has been moving in a, a pretty amazing direction, uh, from a very small and local movement to a now on the brink of being a global movement. Of course, the world back then was much smaller than it is today in terms of scope and in terms of connectivity, as, as, as it were. But uh, clearly, it was on the brink of being global uh, pertaining to the Roman Empire, um, starting in the streets of Jerusalem um, with just a few people. Uh, by Acts 11, they had now planted a second uh, church, a second location, um, thousands of miles away from where it all began. So um, we've we've been following that story um, as they as they begin to move beyond Judea back in Acts eight. And then, of course, last week we saw them plant that church in Acts eleven in Antioch. Um, but Acts twelve is a brief intermission from that progression and what we've witnessed and, and what we've seen building over the last couple chapters and studies. Uh, really, uh, from Acts 6 to Acts 11, there's been nothing but progression, not just in a literal, physical way, but in a spiritual way. We've seen growth uh, in the people of the church and in the, in the movement that, that what the church was as, as they began to make decisions about who they were going to be and who they were going to go to. Uh, we've seen them change and move forward and, again, make progress. Um, of course, all that culminates... Um, in that amazing story with Peter, Cornelius, and then that, that, the church meeting, and then the, ch the church expansion, it culminates with the church deciding that they should go to the Gentiles, and they didn't just think about it, they didn't just pray about it, they did something about it. And they expanded to the Gentiles with that uh, church in Antioch. Now, Acts 12 is more in line thematically and narratively with the earlier chapters of Acts, back from chapter 5 and before, um, as it focuses on the local church in Jerusalem once again, um, as, and, and it focuses on the opposition that they face. Now, obviously, the, the focus shifts because chronologically, uh, that, that's where this story fits in. But I think there's another takeaway um, as to why Luke uh, shifts the story back to Jerusalem in Acts 12, rather than just, you know, leaving the story out or rather than just putting the story earlier. Could have easily put the story earlier before all the expansion just to say, hey, this is some of the things they would face later on. But no, Luke makes sure that before we continue with the Gentile expansion, before we move the story on the to Saul and, 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 and uh, Barnabas and the, and the Gentile church, uh, Luke shifts our focus back to Peter, back to Jerusalem, I think, to remind us of a few specific things. Uh, there are some seasons of life where big event after big event takes place. We've all been in that, in the, in that place in our life where just one thing after another happens and it's just exciting or there's just momentum and, and we kind of get addicted to the thrill. We get addicted to that feeling of significance that comes with those moments. Um, and, and, and again, for the last couple of chapters, we've seen the church has been on the rise from a fledgling Jewish spinoff and it's now an international all-inclusive, as in not just Jewish, but Gentiles as well, this all-inclusive movement. And, and, and this was big and this was what Jesus said would happen back in Acts 1. Uh, 
uh, and within less than 10 years, I mean, this takes place around 41 AD. So less than a decade in, the church is already expanding, already establishing their own identity, already moving on uh, beyond Judea, uh, like Jesus said they would. And, and I mean, now they are a multi-site movement. Uh, they had made inroads in Judea, Samaria. Um, they had sent missionaries down to Africa. Now they were going to Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Uh, they were at the back door of the Greco-Roman mainland. I mean, this was just moving right along. And again, just 10 years into this, nobody could have ever predicted this. Um, Acts 12 brings things back to level one though. And not only is it with less pomp and circumstance, but it's also another story of persecution. And, you know, really, if you read through Acts, it's almost like when Saul of Tarsus is saved, it's like, well, persecution is going to end now because God pulled the one guy that was against the church off of the opposition team and put him on the, on the good guy side, on the, on the winning side. So when Saul of Tarsus is saved, it, it's almost like Luke is suggesting that God solved the persecution issue by taking the number one enemy off of the front line. So we would expect or we would hope that maybe persecution was a thing of the past, but that's not so. Saul of Tarsus being saved did not end the threats like they had hoped it would. The vacuum of opposition was filled with more opponents. Uh, and Acts 12 reminds us that suffering and persecution was something the church was going to deal with uh, in, in perpetuity um, as much as they would have liked to avoid it. Um, and that's going to bring the conversation back to some things that we talked about a few months ago, back in Acts 4, back in Acts 5. Um, so this is how I want us to enter into Acts 12. Before we get into Acts 12 and the story it tells, I want to make sure that we establish some pillars uh, that I think Acts 12 rests on. And I want to make sure that we go into Acts 12 with some things that I think that we ultimately learn from the chapter and that we understand that the, the people in the chapter had front and center in their minds. Uh, so I want to bring you uh, bring your attention to two different banners that I think are clearly over the disciples in Acts 12 that they lived by, that was you know inspiring them and encouraging them. And I hope that we can find these same banners over us tonight and this same inspiration within us. Two things that we're going to see front and center in Acts 12 is that we need not be surprised when Satan fires back. Now, Acts 12 is a story about how persecution is back and it's worse than it was before because not on, this isn't going to be a story of a, 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 a church servant being killed. This is going to be a story of one of the main guys being killed and another very important guy on the brink of being killed. So this is a reminder that Satan does not stop his persecution or his attempts to oppose the church, but rather he rises up even when we think we may have gotten free from that, that there is always going to be a battle that we're going to find ourselves in. Yet we must remember and we must know that there is no need to be surprised or startled when Satan fires or strikes back. And, and number two there, Paul's doesn't have to equal panic. That as in we've been reading a story that is building and the momentum is rising and Acts 12 kind of puts a pause to that. And just because it's a pause, just because things begin to slow down a little bit, or in this case, stop, that doesn't mean that we should panic, but rather we understand that God is still the same God that he was in Acts 11 and that Acts 13 will come in due time. 
Some chapters are longer than others. Some chapters are shorter than others, yet God is still in control. So I want us to make sure that we remember those two things. If you want to write those down, remember those throughout our conversation tonight. Um, I want to briefly touch on these ideas because they will help us better receive what God wants to give us from this text. Um, This chapter is all about, really all about Peter. Um, And there's a verse that Peter would go on to pen or two verses that Peter goes on to write that I think had to have been inspired in part by what he experiences in this chapter that clearly help us understand what they go through. And in 1 Peter 4, this is what Peter writes. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. When, not if, I would love for it to say if, but it doesn't. It says when. So that's a a certainty that we're going to face some trials and fiery implies that it's not an easy trial. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So Peter says, hey, we shouldn't be surprised by this. I know we thought that it was behind us, but it wasn't. And we weren't surprised. We shouldn't be surprised and you shouldn't either. And this next verse is so radical. But rejoice Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That the suffering that you experience and share in is a prediction or is a predecessor of glory that you will also share in. But you can't get to the glory lest you go through the trial and the suffering. When Satan fires back, we should not be surprised, but we should rather be confident. What can we be confident about? The trial may be and will be intense, but God's presence will not leave us. Now, that is something that you can, you can take to the bank. Now, that doesn't guarantee what the trial is going to be like and what's going to be the result of the trial, but it does guarantee that no matter what you face in that trial, no matter what happens to you on the other side of that trial, because we see two different outcomes for two different saints in this chapter. One outcome is better than the other from an earthly perspective, but both can cling to this and both of us and any of us, whether road we take or we find ourselves on, We can cling to this promise. The trial may be intense, but God's presence will not leave us. And, and, and this is a big if, if we remain faithful in the trial, we will come out with a greater sense of and sensitivity to, notice the distinction there, sense of as in awareness and sensitivity to as in inner understanding of God's presence and his plans. That doesn't mean you're always going to feel that everything's great, but you'll know that even if you can't feel it, that you can trust him. Very important. If we remain faithful in the trial, we will come out of it with a greater sense of and sensitivity to. Now, I want to remind you of a story that we just sing about Uh, As the Jewish authorities seek to strike back on the now bustling church, it reminds me of the story of Daniel. Now, y'all know the story of Daniel. Daniel and his peers are taken to Babylon as captives of the royal family. Remember, Daniel was a part of that first group of captives taken to Babylon in 605 BC. He was a child of the tribe of Judah. Very likely, he could have been king one day. He was of the house and lineage of David, and he had three friends or three relatives, three cousins with him amongst a whole other group of young boys. Daniel and his peers taken. The goal was to cut the royal household 
in the house in the lineage of David. These, three, these four men plus their peers were emasculated. They were made eunuchs, so they could not have kids. And their names were changed. Their language was changed. They were brainwashed. That was the goal, at least. But the story goes that Daniel and his three relatives refused to compromise and refused to change inwardly, even though outwardly they changed a great amount. They prove because of their refusal to compromise, they are put on high, you know, under high watch because the, you know, these four Jewish guys are giving us trouble. They won't eat the right stuff. They won't worship the right way. So we're going to make sure we monitor them because we might need to just go ahead and put them out to pasture because they might just be more trouble than they're worth. But the story goes that they proved to be the best and the brightest and the most capable compared to the other captives. And they are promoted and given special privilege in the Babylonian courts. They're made very uh, high rank, uh, given high rank in the king's cabinet. Now, this incited some jealousy, as you would imagine, and there was some plots to take them down as they leapfrogged even the native Babylons in rank and opportunities. Daniel is eventually promoted so high in the kingdom that he begins to, to go around the empire and take care of different issues in different cities. Uh, his three friends or three cousins, they um, are left there locally in Babylon, and they become the target of very specific attacks in Daniel 3. Now, y'all know that story, but just a brief background for it. Uh, there's a statue built in honor of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian gods. Everyone is commanded to worship these gods when it's a such and such time of day, when the bells start to toll and the music starts to play. Uh, these three heroes, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, reportedly don't cooperate when the edict is issued, and the king asks them, is this true? Because you all are my, one of, some of my favorite guys. Uh, this can't be true, so I'll give you all a chance to make it right. And I want you to pay attention to the back and forth between these three and their king from Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar says, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Doesn't mince his words there, right? You and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? What God is going to help you get free from me? Because I know you believe in some God out there, but I'm right in front of you and I hold your life in my hands. So what good is that God you can't see when you can see me and you can see the fire I'm about to throw you in? If you do not worship, who will deliver you? And of course, the three heroes answer and say to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. Now, here's very important, a very important distinction. This is not them saying that God is obligated to deliver us out of the fire. This is them saying, we are not in your hand. Do you see that? This is them saying to Nebuchadnezzar, we are not in your hand. We are in God's hand. And if God's hand takes us to the furnace and ends our life, that's his will and we're happy with it. But don't you think that we are in your hand because we're not. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. 
Notice the comparison. Nebuchadnezzar said, but if you don't worship me or my gods, who will deliver you? And they say, you're not controlling our destiny. And our God will deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're still not going to worship you or your gods. Now, this is why I brought this story up. Because his response in verse 19 Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually. So much like in the story that we're going to read, Satan strikes back. In this story, Satan heats up the furnace more than it normally would be heated. Do not be surprised when the furnace is heated up hotter than it usually is. I mean, a normally heated furnace is enough. I mean, what did he think he was going to do? I mean, make him, I mean, he was just going to kill him faster. There wasn't, there's no, there's no, you know, small, a little fire still going to burn him up, but you know, this is just him being full of rage. So it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but we get the point, don't we? He heated it up seven times more, a picture of the fiery trials that we may go through. Now, Satan turned up the heat on these faithful men, yet they did not panic. And it was in the trials, greater intensity, they experienced the greatest presence of God to date. Remind you how it ends. King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. But he says to them, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of God. So just because the trial gets trickier and the fire gets hotter doesn't mean doesn't mean that God somehow suddenly overwhelmed, is suddenly overwhelmed and outnumbered. I apologize, this has given me trouble tonight for some reason. And even if the enemy's onslaught sets us back, even brings a halt to the momentum of God we were experiencing, we still cling to the same promise. God is in control. This is where our second idea comes from. Paul's doesn't have to equal panic. Eventually, eventually, the wind of God will dry up the waters. If you want proof, read Genesis 1, read Genesis 7, read Exodus 14, read Joshua 3. We could go on and on and on. The enemy comes against us often with reinforcement and quelling momentum and confidence, but we must stay strong and better yet, we cannot we can stay strong because of God's track record. I want, you to sh- want to show you a psalm that I believe clearly inspired the early church as it reminded them that God's power was always going to be moving in their direction. The wind of God was always drying up the waters. Psalm 74. God, yet God my king is from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. We know that God will come through. God will break through the darkness and the waters, so we must not lose heart. I feel like the early church did not waste these truths like we do. Now, don't be insulted. My point is they live from a place where the promises that God made them were well alive within them. 
They didn't just take these promises of God as something, as as mere ceremonial things. They actually believed in them and trusted in him. They thrived because of it. And I got to ask us, do we live from that same place? And as we read Acts 12, I want you to consider, um, I want you to consider how after chapters and years of momentum, this progression the church has been on, as the church is hit with one punch after another, they don't bat an eye. Because they cling to these promises of God. They cling to the truth of God. The promises that even though the devil may strike back, God's movement will not be stopped. And that's a key distinction. His movement. Israel always understood that even if one or two or a few may suffer loss, ultimately the movement of God would persist and their loss would not be in vain. That in the Old Testament, when the Jews suffered, they believed that even if they suffered individually, that it was somehow working out collectively for the good of the nation. And that's that's the notion the church has in the New Testament. And that's the notion that we should have. See, they may and they would have suffered in honor of him for the glory, for the greater glory of him, which was rising from and through the movement of God. So understand that even though individuals may suffer, they understood that it was for the greater good of the movement of God. Now listen to how Acts 12 begins. Now about that time, Herod the king, this is the grandson of the Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, uh, the the same lineage of the Herod that tried to uh, work against him when he was uh, in his earthly ministry. This is Herod uh, Agrippa number one. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John. So that's one of the big three, you know, James, John, and Peter, the three that would go to the prayer, to the mountain with Jesus, to pray with Jesus. So this is one of the three leaders of the church. He killed James, the brother of Jesus, with a sword, so beheaded him. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now notice what time of year this was. It was during the days of the unleavened bread, which was the Passover, So when he arrested him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. So we've heard of, uh, we we know that this is a time of year the church um, is familiar with and thinks uh, has a lot of connections to. We'll talk about that in a minute. First off, it's very easy to breeze past that James, one of the big three, is killed by Herod. We know this chapter as the story of Peter's deliverance, but I don't want us to move past the fact that James is killed and not much attention is given to James, this one of the most important disciples um, that has ever lived. Does this contradict all the promises of deliverance and overcoming that we've talked about? No, because again, James did not suffer in vain. James' loss was in honor of something. It was for the greater glory of something. Ultimately, and I want you to hear this, our greatest confidence is that even in death, we are yet victorious. What do you think that fire is a picture of in the Old Testament? A bad day on earth? I don't think so. What is that fire a picture of? That fire is a picture of death, of hell, right? Right? 
That fire is a picture of we all will die one day, yet our hope is that because of Jesus, we will live forever. Now, again, it's a picture of the little victories that we have in this life, but are those anything compared to the greatest victory of resurrection? I don't think so. Again, we, we make a big deal, and we should make a big deal because it's awesome how Jesus healed people on this earth. But don't you think all those people died? I mean, Lazarus isn't walking around somewhere in Judea thinking, man, I just can't die. And it's great that God healed him, right? But he died again. But the promise is that even all the people that Jesus healed, the blind, the lame, the sick, all those that he healed, their greatest victory would be the fact that by faith in him, they would live forever. And those little victories were a preview of something much bigger. But there is a temptation here in front of us. There is a temptation to make a bigger deal about Peter's earthly escape than James' heavenly hope. Because we know what happens in this chapter. Peter's put in prison. He's let out of prison. We know the story. Now, earthly escapes are great. I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to pray for one because they do for Peter and he gets it. Earthly escapes are great if that's God's will and if that can bring glory to God and advance his cause in a way that he deems effective. But if he deems that we suffer some earthly loss, if he deems that we die for his glory, is our heavenly hope suddenly an afterthought? Is it a consolation prize? By no means. So I guess my point is this. Back to those three heroes of Daniel. If not, God is still God. God's will is still best. We will still overcome. We will still win. In our skin, in our flesh, in our bodies, don't get me wrong, nobody considers the two options and thinks, I'd much rather be James. Right? I mean, nobody reads this chapter and thinks, well, if I was given the option to be James or Peter, I'd definitely be James. I mean, nobody's that, you know. But the reason I'm bringing this up is sometimes we're going to be James. I know that's not what makes you feel good. You know, I know that's not what, you know, I'm not going to knock other churches. I know that's not what's popular and may not be what's propagated in churches, but sometimes we are going to be James. Remember the story of John the Baptist? Jesus said, there's never a man been born of woman better than him. And what happened to John the Baptist? Jesus let him die. Let him die. He just said, hey, they said, you're going to go help him? Nope. Why not? I'm just not going to. And John was beheaded. Similar to this, right? You can see some parallels here. James, John the Baptist, Peter, and Jesus. We'll get to that. Sometimes we're going to be James. That doesn't mean we lost. Listen, Christian, this is important. That doesn't mean we lost. That doesn't mean we're less favored. That doesn't mean we have less faith. There's a group of people out there that would convince you otherwise, but I want it to be very clear. If you are James, it doesn't mean you lose or are less favored or have less faith. It just means it was God's will, and that's how he deemed your life be used to glorify him and to work some kingdom good, even in ways you might could not see. I feel like if we suffer, if we breeze past this, when we, miss, we will miss this sobering reminder that in this life we will suffer. And sometimes it costs the ultimate price. 
a price that our generation of Christians know nothing about in our country, but plenty around the world do. We think God, we think God owes deliverance from a bad day, but the truth is God's will is that sometimes we suffer. And yet he's still good and we still win. Clinging to our heavenly hope is as good as experiencing an earthly escape. And honestly, in reality, it's better. If God says our earthly work is finished, then there is no defeat, there's only victory. But, but, but just the same, because sometimes we're not James, sometimes we are Peter. If God's will is that we face some earthly hardship which persists, we must persevere in it, knowing that even in our suffering, there is something to gain for God. I don't make the decision as to who is Peter and who is James. God does, and that's the, the hope that you have, because God does not make wrong decisions. In this instance, Peter is arrested to much applause during the Passover season, which of course reminds you of Jesus, doesn't it? Which is a point that we see in Acts. Just as the disciples are filled with the power of Jesus, they are also struck with the sufferings of Jesus. Now I want you to, get this. I want you to notice this. Peter is arrested during the Passover week. Look at verse number five. Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Now, do you not think they also prayed for James? I'm sure they did. Verse six, when, Peter, when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now an angel of the Lord stood by him and a light shone in the prison and he struck Peter on the side and he raised him up saying, arise quickly and his chains fell off his hands. Now, I wanna paint a picture here for you. Notice the symbolism, Peter is in prison. He is between two people. His hands are bound, one on one side and one on the other. He is struck in the side and what does that remind you of? This is the Passover week. We have Peter between two others bound. He is struck in the side. And then he, we hear this word, arise. That is the word raise up or be raised up or resurrect. Peter is sentenced to death, but between two other prisoners, the week of Passover. Clearly, this is a picture of Jesus, isn't it? In this instance, Peter is spared from death. Yet it's still like a resurrection. He's raised up from an earthly circumstance by the hand of God. And the angel in verse number seven stood by him. Or verse number eight says, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said, put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him and did not know what was done by the angel, if it was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. So Peter thinks he's in a trance or in some sort of a dream. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to an iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them on its own accord. And they went out and went down one street. Immediately the angel departed from him. And at this point, Peter wakes up completely and says, now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectations of the Jewish people. So this is clearly a miracle that Peter is let out of prison. Peter comes to himself and realizes, wow, this is something that God has done. So he begins to head towards the church. Now, I want to I wanna talk about this once again, because the Bible says the church had been praying, which is what you should do, right? Now, again, we don't, we don't have enough time between verse, between 
James' arrest and James' death to know that the church was praying for James. I'm sure they were praying for James, right? So James is dead. Peter is alive. We're tempted to wonder why did prayer work, quote unquote, work for one and not the other. But this is not the pathway we should take, honestly. So I want to talk about this for a minute. Why, therefore, do we pray in situations like this? Why do we pray? Now, if, if, if we believe that God is sovereign and God chose that James would not live and God chose for Peter to live, what is the purpose of prayer? Because clearly prayer was not answered for James, but it was for Peter. So therefore, why do we pray in situations like this? Well, I'll tell you why we pray. Because prayer is greater than panic. More importantly, in prayer, we do four things. In prayer, we entrust our situation to God. In prayer, we, instead of saying, God, I'm panicking, we say, God, this is yours. You're in charge. We're giving it to you. We're trusting you. We, are know, we know that you are in control. So prayer allows us to be grounded in this truth. God is in control. And what do we do in prayer? We ask God to control us, to calm us, and we accept his will. We accept his will. Do we ask for what we want? Of course. But we accept what he wills. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're not. Now they went to pray for Peter, for James and for Peter, of course, praying for both to live. Ultimately, God chooses to only free one. Prayer allowed them to remain under control and they were ready to accept God's answer as best and glorify him no matter what. We are to pray in like manner. And here's the good news. God will never let his church down if we're always looking up to him in prayer. He will never let you down if you're always looking up. Real quickly, look at verse 12 through 19. This is a kind of a comical story and I think that there's a reason for that. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary. Now, we believe the house of Mary, which is the home of John Mark, is where the church was located. This was the base for the church. Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, that's the gospel of Mark. Peter and Mark wrote that book together, uh, where many of, the, the, many of them were gathered together praying. So they're gathered there praying. And as Peter knocks on the door, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. Now, this is kind of funny, verse 15. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. And they said, that's his angel. Now, I don't know what their theology was. I don't understand what they were thinking. Of, you know, does he have an angel that looks like him? I don't know. I don't think that's really that big of a deal. Clearly, they did not think this was literally Peter. Now, Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and they were astonished. Now, what were they doing? They were praying for him to get freed from prison. So, a little bit comical, right? This is an honesty that we see. God shows us that they were praying for Peter to live, yet they're surprised to see him live. Which maybe helps us understand their prayer a little better. We'll get to that. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, go and tell these things to James and to the brothers. That's James, Jesus' brother. He departed and went to another place. Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what Peter, what had become of Peter. 
When Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there or took a vacation. So they were surprised to see that Peter survived. Now, I want to I say this. I don't think this suggests a lack of faith on their part. I've heard this preached. Maybe in my past I've preached it this way, but God corrected me, and I really, really believe this. I don't think that they had a lack of faith. Now, some people will say, well, they didn't believe that Peter was going to be freed. If that was the case, Peter wouldn't have been freed. I mean, if prayer is all up to us believing enough, then that Peter doesn't get out of, out, of, out of jail because they didn't believe enough, if that's the case. So here's what I think is going on. It shows that they weren't putting their faith in Peter's survival. Remember, remember the point of prayer? Entrusting it to God. Trusting and knowing that God knows best. Accepting his will, waiting on his will. So this shows they weren't putting their faith in Peter's survival. They were putting their faith in God's provision and counting anything beyond that as an undeserved blessing. And guess what? Peter showed up. They didn't expect him to live. They knew that God could save him and they wanted God to save him, but they didn't guarantee that God would save him and they didn't feel like God had to save him. God didn't save James. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that you have to pray this way. I'm just saying I want you to marvel at the faith these people actually had because they weren't crossing their arms thinking, okay, God, if you don't save Peter, we're not going to believe in you anymore. They had just accepted that God had a plan and they were going to trust and accept his will as best. Now, I'm glad Peter was saved and I'm glad that they believed that Peter could be saved, but I just want us to understand that these people had an amazing amount of faith and they had an amazing amount of confidence that God was right and God was good even if they didn't think it ended good. Real quickly, I want you to see how this story ends. Verse 20. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord and having made blast, blast the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a sad day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Then immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. He was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Now, big picture wise, it's very important because Herod's replaced by his son, Herod Agrippa II. And that becomes important later on in the story when Paul and Agrippa come face to face. But that's for another day. This is the difference in the church and its leaders and, it, and the kingdoms of the world. The church understood that this story was ultimately not about them, but about God. The prosperity we experience and the blessings we enjoy, they are all extra. They are all beyond what we're promised. They simply saw themselves as called to serve the Lord. And of course, we know that God calls us more than servants. Jesus said, you're more than that. You're my friends. And we're very blessed because of that. Herod is a picture of those who trust in this world, always looking for some gain and glory for themselves. And here we see the end of that. He's eaten by worms and dies. So notice the parallels. Notice the bookends of this chapter. At the beginning of this chapter, 
The, the same crowd that cheers Herod at the end are cheering for James and Peter when they're arrested. This, cha- this, this chapter is bookended by applause of men. James and Peter are arrested. It pleases the Jews. Herod is exalted as more than a king, as a God. It pleases the people. Yet they cheer for these two that suffer and they cheer for this one that seems to be exalted. Yet the story ends, James is in heaven with no earthly applause. Peter is serving the Lord with earthly opposition and the self-serving applauded Herod is struck down to hell. Notice the contrast. We are here for just a brief minute and yet we have an eternal opportunity in front of us We can contribute to something much bigger than ourselves or we can settle for ourselves. Acts 12 paints a perfect picture, a powerful picture of these two pathways. Every day we have to consider which one we're on. If we choose to serve the Lord, it may bring pain, it may bring suffering, it may bring death. But we know that we will receive the greater reward. We know that we are promised eternal life. The alternative? Temporary glory temporary applause, eternal loss, and eternal death. So the story goes like this. Herod dies a gloryless death while Peter and James both suffered glorious loss resulting in even more glorious gain. Are you willing to trust that glorious loss comes before glorious gain? Are you willing to categorize your loss as glorious in order that you may sense and experience some gain in the future? James lost by our definition of life and success. But we know that his loss was truly gained. Peter lost temporarily, yet he gained because of prayer, because of his faithfulness. We must consider the same for our lives. We may experience glorious loss, but that loss can result in an even more glorious gain. Are you willing to trust God to connect those two? Many of us take the road of Herod because we see something here and now. And I promise you that is nothing but a glorious pathway to death and eternal destruction. May God open our eyes. May God open our world's eyes to see that what seems to be the right way for man is not always the right way, but rather the loss that God may call us to is the true pathway to gain now and most importantly forever would you pray with me heavenly father thank you for this story thank you for this moment in history where we get to observe two saints whose lives were on the line one lost everything and one almost did god thank you for helping us see the church's faith in this moment where they did not 
they didn't expect you or demand that you meet their terms. They just trusted that you had a plan, you had a will. And even if, it did, even if they suffered some loss, they believed the movement of God would be spared. The movement of God would actually be strengthened. God, help us to see how you are wanting to strengthen us in our movement. And even if it includes loss temporarily, there is some kind of gain eternally. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for this scripture. May you help us have the same confidence as this church had, as the Hebrews and the fire had. And help us to praise you no matter what. Trusting that there is something to be gained. There is something to be glorified. And that no matter what loss we experience, there is a glorious gain on the other side. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.